Welcome to Theragnostic Talks by Sam Nordic, the one and only podcast about Theragnostic. What even is Theragnostic and what does the future for it look like? In this podcast, we'll find out interesting science and get answers to curious questions by talking to true experts, clinicians, scientists and people from the industry. I've been to many of my patients' funerals, um, uh, and which is sort of the ultimate, uh, I guess, admission of failure as an oncologist is going to the funeral, funeral of your patients. But the reason I've gone is because they've become my friend. Hi and welcome to this first ever episode of the podcast Terragnostic Talks. My name is Gustav Vidar and here with me in this studio I have the fantastic Annette Andrian. Welcome Annette. Thank you very much Gustav. This is a great pleasure and so exciting. Today we have a really interesting guest. And that is Professor Rodney Hicks from Peter Mac. Great, I think we start. Uh, here's the presentation of Rod. Take it away. He is known as a pioneer, has over 500 peer-reviewed publications and has held numerous national and international research grants. One among them, the International Cancer Imaging Society's top honour, the ICIS Gold Medal, in recognition of his exceptional contribution to oncological imaging and to international education. Professor Rodney Hicks started his career in nuclear medicine he witnessed one of the first treatments with MIBG in a patient with metastatic pheochromocytoma. For him, an eye-opener, to see the tumour shrink. He pioneered the use of PET and has introduced a number of novel PET traces. Rodney Hicks is Director of Molecular Imaging at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and Professor of Medicine and Radiology at the University of Melbourne specialised in rare diseases as neuroendocrine tumours. And for him, it's all about the patient. In a time when science focuses on overall survival, he asks, what quality of life does it bring to the patient? And the treatment of patients, he says, is not science. It is art. Terragnostics has, according to Professor Hicks, a strong future if we remain engaged and brave. Okay, welcome Rod and welcome to this uh, podcast, Diagnostic Talks. I'm very pleased to be here. How was your day today? It was a beautiful sunny day. It was uh, 33 degrees uh, Celsius and I was, uh, ate my breakfast in the sun uh, outside by the pool. So I live in a very different part of the world to you guys uh, at the moment where you're in snow and, and winter. We're on the other side of the world. So it's, uh, it's a nice place to be, uh, uh, particularly living a virtual life as I am at the moment. And it's fantastic that we can sit together despite so different uh, environments that we have and still at the same place talking about the same thing. Yeah, I think this is one, one of the wonderful innovations uh, that, that we've seen coming out of COVID uh, pandemic, uh, that we, we're now able to talk to each other around the world and we're getting really much more comfortable with this sort of format of, of communication, of talking to each other and sharing our ideas uh, uh, in meeting, virtual meetings by podcasts and other uh, means uh, instead of jumping on a plane and flying, you know, for, for me, 
sometimes 30 hours to get to the other side of the world to talk at a meeting, maybe for 15 or 20 minutes. So it's, uh, it is really opening up the, uh, the means of education and communication in a, in a way that I think is really wonderful uh, for us to share ideas and uh, for us to really be what, what I think we are in medicine, the, the one true global community. Definitely agree there. And um, as this is the Teragnostic Talks pod, how would you describe or explain Teragnostics for someone that, that does not have heard about it before? A lot of people think that uh, Theragnostics, I, I call it Theragnostics, there's two different spellings of it. One that's got a G in it and one that lacks the G. And probably in, in, in the classic sort of uh, uh, language, a- antique languages, the G is right, Gnostic being to know about something. Uh, but I read agnostic in it, uh, that, that sort of conveys the sense that I'm not really sure about this, it's, is, is it real or not? Uh, whereas I, I, I really believe that it is, is real. So I like theragnostics and it it's, sounds to me a little bit easier to say than theragnostics, um, but probably in, in, in pure terms, it should be uh, their agnostics. A lot of people sort of see this as a very new thing. They sort of uh, very much about uh, of you know, hearing about the use of uh, the, the radioisotopes to diagnose and treat neuroendocrine tumours or prostate cancer. And they, these are very hot topics in the nuclear medicine world and in the clinical oncology world at the moment. But actually, therapeutic nuclear medicine goes back uh, to the start of the last century, almost before uh, uh, you know, we we knew how it worked. Marie uh, Curie, uh, as you're probably aware, um, isolated radium in the first instance in the the early uh, 1900s uh, as part of her PhD project, and she gave a sample to Pierre Curie, who was to become her husband. And he took a sample of it to the Sorbonne, uh, where he was a lecturer in physics. Uh, in his uh, breast pocket, and he got a burn on his chest, uh, a radiation burn, and he uh, he went uh, uh, and saw a friend who who worked uh, uh, who was a dermatologist who looked at it and said, "This is very interesting. Perhaps we could use this to treat skin cancers." And uh, so he he tried this on some squamous cell carcinomas and basal cell carcinomas in his patients at the uh, Salpetriere Hospital in in, um, in Paris. And uh, to their amazement, these uh, cancers uh, sort of went away. And uh, that began the use of uh, radioisotopes for the treatment of cancer. It was really only uh, in the 1960s with the advent of the rectilinear scanner and then the gamma camera that people realized that you could then see what they were already treating with radioactive iodine. And so the the concept of theranostics is that you image a biological target and then having seen it, you then use a therapeutic radionuclide, one that emits uh, particles that go a very short distance in tissues to treat the cancer. Uh, And so that basic paradigm of seeing and then treating is a fundamental uh, basis of the theranostic uh, approach. And that's now been applied to, to many diseases. And I'm sure in the future is going to be applied to many more cancers that uh, as the armamentarium of diagnostic uh, traces that, as I say, uh, identify biologically relevant targets and then using a therapeutic radioisotope to then secondarily treat 
uh, the, uh, the disease is, is really an exciting uh, approach. And particularly uh, when the target is very, very uh, specific for the, the cancer in question and expressed on very few other normal tissues. And that's where the, the real strength of the, the, the therapy or the theranostic approach uh, lies. That's really an interesting uh, history of the evolution of diagnostics, as we have seen it, it has only been reserved to some few people, some few centers uh, or specialities, maybe nuclear medicine mostly, but now and, and a few companies, but now it's really getting to be a large hype around this in pharma, big pharma, a lot of money going into the, the business. Why is it now the timing? Well, I, I think we've never known more about uh, the, those biological processes I spoke about, the specific features of cancers that, that separate them from normal cells. Uh, through the genomic rev revolution, we understand a lot more about the biology of, of cancers, of what uh, specific changes there are in those cells uh, that enable them to be uh, identified as unique populations of cells different to the normal cells. Uh, the other aspect, I guess, about uh, this is that often the targets that we use are ones that the, the cell of origin from which the cancer arises already had. Uh, but the difference is that the cells in a cancer are actively growing and actively growing cells are much more sensitive to radiation than quiescent cells. And, and most of the cells in our body, uh, are, are, apart from bone marrow and skin and, and, and the lining of our gut, uh, are, are sitting there not growing or, or dividing very infrequently, uh, whereas uh, uh, cancer cells are dividing very much more frequently. And that makes a, a big difference when we can target them. And so if, if I perhaps go to the example of neuroendocrine tumours, uh, all the neuroendocrine cells in our body uh, express somatostatin receptors. They're a, a generic off switch for neuroendocrine cells. They respond to an endocrine endogenous uh, hormone called somatostatin, which tells them to stop doing whatever they're doing, stop making insulin, stop making glucagon, stop making gastrin, uh, stop secreting any of the, the, the various hormones that they normally produce. Uh, those cells uh, uh, will turn off with that. But if you radioactively label, you can see the cells that have those receptors on them. And so we see the pituitary gland, we see the adrenal glands, um, we see the thyroid gland, which all have somatostatin receptors on them. But in a neuroendocrine cancer, we have an aggregation of cancer cells that also, in the vast majority of cases, express that same receptor. So it becomes a target. And when we do imaging using a somatostatin analog, a copy of the somatostatin hormone, uh, uh, in most cases, uh, uh, a peptide called octreotate which has the same four critical amino acids that bind to the somatostatin receptor, but are chemically modified in such a way that instead of being broken down in the bloodstream in a matter of minutes, gets, it circulates for hours uh, until it binds to those receptors. And if you put a radioactive tag onto that somatostatin analogue, the octreotide, 
lactate or octreotide, it will go and bind to all the cells in the body that have that receptor on them. So you see the pituitary gland, you see the adrenal gland, you see the, the thyroid gland, but you also see the, the, the cancer deposits, the, the, the primary and secondary deposits of the cancer that have that same receptor on them. Uh, having seen them, we can then substitute out a radioactive uh, tracer that gives off rays that come outside the body can be detected by a scanner, either a gamma camera or a PET scanner, uh, with a, an isotope that gives off particles that go a very short distance in tissue. And so when I'm explaining this to my patients, I, I liken it to a, a courier uh, who has a very specific passcode uh, or address key, and he can go and deliver mail or packages to all the addresses that he's given. And he can carry with him a GPS device that will tell someone on their computer where he is when he where where he is at any given moment. But he can also be uh, potentially armed with with uh, bombs, if you like, that could go in and they could blow up all these these places where he delivered the packages if he if he decided to be a terrorist. And so he could go in and and uh, and try and cause damage to those um, the places where those packages are delivered. In this case, uh, the, the, the therapy is, is also uh, quite specific in not only being delivered to the right place, but then being very specific for the cells that it damages. It's not damaging every cell to the same degree. Some cells are much more sensitive to that damage than others. As I said, the cancer cells, because they're actively growing, are much more sensitive to the effects of radiation than are the normal cells. And so uh, when we started this therapy, and, and, and I know that the developers of this, uh, who uh, the somatostatin therapy, which we call peptide receptor, the octreotate and, and um, somatostatin, the peptides, and they bind to a receptor and it's radionuclide, they're radioactive chemicals and therapy. So PRRT, peptide receptor radionuclide therapy, was developed by uh, colleagues of, of mine uh, in, in um, Rotterdam at the Erasmus Medical Centre uh, uh, in the um, early 1990s. Um, and uh, they, they were concerned uh, that they may damage the pituitary gland, the adrenal glands and other uh, critical endocrine organs, which are very important to our bodily functions. And they measured many of the hormones. What they found is that they, they barely changed. And certainly they didn't get rid of the adrenal glands. They didn't uh, end up with no pituitary function. But what they did see was that the tumours stopped growing because they were damaged by the radiation. And then in a, in a proportion of cases, and particularly as they used more and more powerful therapeutic radioisotopes, the tumours started to shrink uh, in a proportion of cases. And so that, that paradigm of uh, very specific targeting, but also the sensitivity of, this, of this, the cells is, is really critical to the, the theranostic paradigm. And uh, so in, in neuroendocrine tumours, for example, as long as the neuroendocrine tumour continues to express the, the receptor, uh, we get the best and fastest and most complete responses in the more aggressive uh, forms of the disease. Uh, it's sort of a paradox that the very low grade ones, which are very, what we call well differentiated, they retain the characteristics of the cell from which they arose, uh, but they're not very actively growing. And so they tend to not respond as 
quickly or as uh, completely as the higher grade uh, tumours. And so uh, what we're seeing um, in, in other cancers where we're starting to apply this theranostic paradigm, uh, like prostate cancer is a much more rapidly growing cancer than, uh, than neuroendocrine tumours. And so when we uh, use PSMA, prostate-specific membrane antigen, as the targeting agent uh, or the target of the therapy, uh, and uh, we use various PSMA-binding uh, uh, chemicals, uh, because those prostate cancer cells are tending to grow more rapidly, we tend to see more rapid responses and more complete responses uh, in prostate cancer uh, than we see in neuroendocrine tumours. The downside of that is that the, if you don't eradicate the cells, the, the more rapidly that they'll, they'll repopulate, they'll come back. And what, sorry, what do you mean by if you don't eradicate the cells, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of issues that are relevant here. The first is that within any cancer, there will be a subpopulation of cells that are dividing less aggressively than others, that they're in a more quiescent state at any given time. Uh, only a proportion of cells are actively cycling. Uh, we can measure that uh, uh, with pathology using a stain called Key67 or KI67 uh, that tells what percentage of cells. Uh, and that's used for the grading, for example, of neuroendocrine uh, uh, cancers or uh, tumours. Uh, a low-grade one will have 1% to 2%, an intermediate grade 3 to 20%, and a high-grade more than 20%. Very high-grade ones can be closer to 100% of cells actively cycling at any given time. Most card-carrying cancers will be 90 to 100% key 67, uh, very high-grade prostate cancer will be in that sort of range. Lower-grade uh, prostate cancer might only be 50% of cells actively dividing. And it's those actively dividing cells that we're, we're probably going to kill more effectively. The quiescent ones act in, in as a reserve, if you like, uh, that may not be treated or, or may be very resistant to the effects of radiation as we give it. So that, that that's one issue. The second issue is that uh, there's a, a real challenge with radionuclide therapy uh, treating uh, single cells or very small clusters of cells uh, because even when the, the isotope binds to the target and particularly you're getting inside the cell, the particles uh, are shot out of the radioactive uh, uh, isotope for a distance of between one and, um, and two millimetres and up to a centimetre, depending on the kind of isotope. And that means that most of the energy is uh, delivered in a sphere around the cell where it's actually localized and very little within the cell itself. So we rely on a cluster of cells bombarding each other. And so again, going back to how I explain it to patients, it's like uh, giving uh, a, a, a group of boys a bag of rocks and, and sending them out into a paddock. And if they're throwing rocks in, in, in all directions, uh, they'll only hit people within the range that they can throw their rocks. And the less people uh, like them in the field, the less people get hurt. If, if there's uh, 
uh, only normal people, non-rock throwing people, they'll get hit occasionally and they might get uh, uh, some minor damage. But if you get a whole lot of boys and you put them in a room and they're all throwing rocks around, and they're hitting each other, they're stoning each other, uh, you'll cause grievous injury to those, th those group of boys. And the same thing happens uh, with, with radionuclide therapy, particularly with those that uh, emit a particle called the beta particle. And most of the therapies that we currently use, use beta emitting uh, radioisotopes. These are beta particles or electrons, and, and as I said, they they depending on the energy and the type of, of radioisotope, they may go as little as as one to two millimeters. Uh, but in some cases of the more energetic, more powerful ones, they'll go up to a centimetre. Uh, the one that we most commonly use and most people have heard of is lutetium-177, and it has an average path length of about one to two millimetres. And so uh, deposits of around five millimetres up to a centimetre or so get very good radiation. Once you get below that, a lot of the radiation is actually delivered to normal adjacent cells. And when you get down to one or two cells, almost none of the radiation is deposited in those cells. So that uh, uh, effect of, of size is really important. Um, and we call it the crossfire effect, uh, that the more particles that are passing through a cell, the more likely you are to damage the DNA, the critical genetic code that allows a cell to grow and to reproduce itself, which is a necessary uh, requirement for a cancer to develop and grow uh, over time. And so uh, uh, if we don't eradicate the cells, it's often from uh, very small deposits or, or single cells. And, and this is something that we've learned, uh, particularly with prostate cancer, that often uh, we'll see during the course of treatment that the big intense black blobs that we see on the scan disappear only to be replaced by new small uh, but equally black uh, uh, blobs elsewhere uh, which are almost certainly cells that were there at the time we gave the first treatment but were inadequately irradiated they had inadequate crossfire effect to to damage those cells and with time those uh, small deposits get big enough that we can see them and they then become amenable again to crossfire effect and they respond to the next treatment. And so it's, it's quite a, an interesting phenomenon to see what we call the pattern of failure. It's often not like it is in chemotherapy where a cancer is most likely to come back where the biggest deposit was because uh, with chemotherapy, we have to kill a proportion of cells with each cycle of treatment. And so the bigger a deposit, the more cycles of treatment it, it requires to eradicate all the cancer cells. For radionuclide therapy, it's the other way around, that size is actually to an extent our friend because we get better crossfire effect. We get more radiation inside the tumour and less outside the tumour. The small deposits are our enemy because they're the ones that, that we can't treat as effectively and they come back. And, and this, this is, I think, a, an exciting area of theranostics, uh, at least for me, is the sequencing and combination of therapies. And, and I, I think that perhaps we've, we've got it wrong in the past where we've tended to use theranostics as the treatment of last resort when everything else has failed. 
um, uh, and often uh, people have been using it when uh, the, uh, the, the amount of disease is quite small, when in fact, we might be better to depopulate the most aggressive parts of the, the tumour and the bigger deposits, get them down to a size where they can be more effectively treated with the other systemic therapies that we more commonly use in cancer, uh, or to identify subpopulations of cells that lack the, the, the target at any given time and uh, substitute treatments that uh, will work for that population of, of cells in, in a particular cancer. So uh, I, I guess the message that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make is that uh, Theranostics is, is becoming one of the, the, I believe, the core pillars uh, of our theranostic or therapeutic armamentarium. We've had surgery, we've had radiotherapy, we've had chemotherapy for you know half a century or so, or surgery thousands of years, uh, but chemotherapy and radiotherapy for 75 years or so. Uh, and uh, the people forget about radionuclide therapy. It's, it's another one of the pillars, but the more recent ones of targeted therapy and immunotherapy. Uh, all of them together, uh, potentially a complementary used at the right time in the right patient. And, and so uh, we're often, for example, using theranostic approaches to debulk inoperable primary tumours with neuroendocrine tumours uh, to a point where they can be treated surgically. And, and similarly, there's a, we're, we're doing a study uh, in, in Melbourne uh, using this in locally advanced prostate cancer to see if we can't shrink the tumours down to a point where the likelihood of curing them surgically or, or with external beam radiotherapy is more likely. Uh, and it's, it's a slightly different approach. Uh, and it's, it's why I think a lot of uh, the pharmaceutical industry are becoming interested in this because I think they're seeing this as a complementary tool to uh, other therapies that they're, they're developing. For example, you might use the same target to deliver a radiosensitizing chemotherapy to a, a, a tissue. So if you've got PS, PSMA expression uh, using a uh, antibody drug conjugate, for example, directed to PS, PSMA uh, that might uh, also sensitize the, um, the tumor to the effects of radiation and then bringing in the radiation, uh, you might get a, a very substantial additive effect uh, than using either alone. And, and, and that's why I think, as I said, uh, that pharmaceutical companies uh, are getting uh, in the game because that they're, they're about finding targets, therapeutic targets, where they're drug targets, targeted therapies, or now radioisotope uh, therapies as well. Imaging is an important part of the diagnostic concept. And um, why do we need the imaging? If you listen to, to the, the big pharma people they some sometimes say that you you don't need to see to know a symptomatic response of the treatments is good enough uh, do you understand my question yeah i do and and i i guess uh, nuclear medicine is really unique in a sense that we're the only uh, uh cancer treatment that can prospectively predict who is going to benefit and who's not going to benefit from from a treatment uh yes you can uh, do immunohistochemistry and, and and identify a therapeutic target that uh, uh, a gene mutation that that might predict that a patient will respond to a targeted therapy 
but you can only do that with a very tiny sample of tissue. And, and we know from our immunotherapy studies, for example, that uh, uh, expression of immune checkpoints uh, is not necessarily predictive of, of response in every patient or every site of disease. Uh, and the, the reason for that is that there's often heterogeneity of target expression. It's not uniform in all tissues, in all sites uh, of disease, even in a given individual. And the real advantage of the Theranostic approach is that by combining anatomical imaging, which tells us where there are lumps of disease, there are deposits of disease, with a molecular imaging uh, approach to look at the expression of the target, we can identify whether all or none or some of the sites of disease have that therapeutic target on them. And so it's a really unique opportunity. Now, if uh, the vast majority of sites of disease are likely to have expression of the target, like thyroid cancer almost always has the sodium iodide symporter uh, on it. Not always, but almost always. It is reasonable to treat, and, and for many years we did treat without imaging before we gave radioactive iodine. But increasingly, we, we recognise even in thyroid cancer that some thyroid cancers and some sites of thyroid cancer lose that sodium iodide symporter and they become refractory or, or resistant uh, or untreatable with radioactive iodine. And so uh, with the imaging approach, we can identify that. And particularly if we combine uh, more than one molecular uh, or biological characteristic of the cancer cells, and one of the innovations I think that we made at Peter Mac uh, and uh, many people have, have now uh, followed is the concept of doing dual uh, uh, tracer imaging, particularly in the higher grade neuroendocrine tumours to see uh, that there are cells that have somatostatin receptors. There are cells that have become more aggressive and start to use uh, glucose and so are seen on an FDG scan and that there's some cells that have both uh, targets on them, both biological characteristics. And uh, we, the very low grade tumors have the somatostatin receptors only and tend not to use glucose. So they're positive on a somatostatin receptor scan, uh, an octreotate scan, or we call it a gatate scan. Uh, some of the high grade tumors are only positive on the FDG scan and some, some are positive on both. And it's actually the, the ones that are positive on both uh, that tend to respond best in our experience to the treatment because it identifies those more aggressively growing cells that are more sensitive to the effects of radiation. And it's also important to identify them because we know that the, the, the conversion from a tumour that's not using glucose to one that is, uh, is associated with a worsening of the outlook for the patient. Their, their prognosis is worse. So by identifying those that have both the target and are actively growing, we, we can identify a subgroup of patients. We can't wait to treat. Uh, we need to treat them because we know that their outlook is, is poor. When we move into prostate cancer and, and our very first therapeutic trial, uh, of lutetium PSMA, we instituted that as part of our selection criteria for suitability for the for the for the treatment, because it is a, a genuine card-carrying cancer, and we we've known for a long time that use of F, uh, glucose FDG positivity in prostate cancer is an adverse prognostic uh, feature. Uh, that we we identified that a 
approximately a third of the patients that, that, that were positive on a PSMA scan had uh, uh, some um, either very low PSMA expression uh, or high FDG uptake and lack the PSMA. And so we couldn't treat those patients because the most aggressive parts of their disease were not going to be given radiation. If you don't deliver radiation, you, 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 you can't obviously cure or kill the, the, uh, the, the cancer cells. And so that, that imaging paradigm of characterising the disease, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a frame shift, I think, for most nuclear medicine people to, to think about. Um, and I've, I've been criticised in the past for using the term lumpology uh, as, as though it was somehow uh, diminishing the importance of anatomical imaging when in fact I've never meant it that way. I've always meant it about the fundamental frame shift that we need in our thinking as nuclear medicine people with molecular images, that molecular imaging is not only finding disease, it's characterizing disease. And so if you take, for example, uh, 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 intermediate grade or high grade neuroendocrine tumor where half of the deposits have somatostatin receptors on them and half do not, the sensitivity for detection of disease is 50%. And people would say that's a very bad diagnostic scan, but it's telling you 100% uh, of the, the deposits that can potentially be treated with PRRT. And similarly with lutetium PSMA, if we use a gallium PSMA or a fluorine PSMA scan, uh, if we're only seeing 50% of the deposits, it's not that they're false negative, it's, it's telling us that they're true negative for that biological target. And, and, and so uh, it, it, we, we do need to, to change our, our thinking that for me, the lumpology critique is applied to nuclear medicine people to change the way they think about scans, not about sensitivity and specificity or how many of the known sites of disease do we find, but how well do we characterise uh, the, the target that we're interested in? And this is where I think uh, the, 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 the future of, of theranostics is going to be. And it may be that we start applying uh, theranostics, if you like, in a multiplexed way that we might be able to bring together a range of theranostic agents uh, to treat them, whether they're radio-labeled monoclonal antibodies or peptides or small molecules. Uh, to me, it's a really exciting area. Or we even might use um, a gene therapy uh, to, to start to, to manipulate cells so they express targets that we have therapeutic agents for, using CRISPR technology, for example, uh, to introduce genes into a cancer uh, that, that might enable them to be treated. So. Uh, to me, it's an incredible, exciting field. I'm, I'm just sad that I'm, I'm getting too old for, <laughs> to, to, to see the next evolution of this technology. Uh, but for the young people entering the field, the, the combination of genomics, molecular biology, uh, and uh, a much greater understanding of the immune system and, and, and biological targets, to me, it's an incredibly exciting period. And, and the other thing that we can do is, is manipulate uh, the responsiveness of cells to DNA damage, DNA repair genes, which are, uh, uh, for example, in prostate cancer, uh, uh, an obvious uh, uh, advance 
uh, we know that a proportion of prostate cancer have already intrinsic DNA repair pro uh, issues uh, and that they probably are going to respond more uh, 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 actively to radiation treatment, uh, internal or external. But there are also drugs that, that are used, uh, PARP inhibitors, for example, which are now entering into the therapeutic armamentarium. Uh, and we're doing a study at Peter Mac combining lutetium PSMA with a PARP inhibitor so that when DNA damage occurs, instead of it being repaired faithfully, uh, it's not repaired. The, the, the single-strand DNA breaks, which predominate with beta uh, uh, therapy, are converted into double-strand DNA breaks, which are more likely to be lethal to the to the cancer. And so, these combination therapies are an incredibly exciting um, advance, I think, as long as we can deliver them safely and, and knowledgeably. Um, and that's uh, another area that I think needs a lot of work. Yes, thank you. So the the imaging is is of course an important part of the teragnostic, but uh, could that be a limiting factor for the development of teragnostic? You know, if if there's no PET CTs uh, available, uh, looking at thinking about developing countries in Africa, and because we know that it's a good treatment, but if we don't have a PET CT, we can't imaging. Uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and I think uh, you know we living in 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 Sweden or Australia, we're we're very very lucky that we have you know advanced economies. We have access to uh, treatments uh, and and scanners, uh, uh, you know, very readily. Uh, we don't always have reimbursement because that often lags behind the technology that we have available to us. But uh, in some parts of the world, it's it's not available. Most parts of the world, there are uh, nuclear medicine facilities, and there are uh, non-pet equivalents of most uh, radioactive uh, pet traces. Uh, they uh, labelled with either technetium or other uh, agents, iodine uh, and various other agents. So uh, gamma camera imaging uh, can be done as a, as a uh, substitute for PET scanning in, in many parts of the world. And uh, in situations where the likelihood of disease of the target is, is very high, like thyroid cancer or low-grade neuroendocrine tumours of a patient who's clearly progressing or symptomatic, uh, you probably don't need imaging uh, for those patients. You could still give the therapy uh, without uh, necessarily doing the imaging. And as I said, uh, therapeutic nuclear medicine preceded the availability of, of imaging, and it's it, it, it's it's not you know a, a long bow to draw to to uh, argue that if you don't have access to imaging but you do have access to the therapy. Uh, that 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 could potentially be um, uh, an alternative that that would benefit patients. But uh, I, I know uh, that in in fact in many of the parts of the developing world uh, uh, there there are there is access now to theranostics uh, that they're they're embracing the the the, um, the utilization of these uh, these techniques. Uh, so the imaging part is is the, the most important thing is to like tailored tailor the treatment for the patient. That's why we need imaging. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've spoken about the identification of the target, but, but the, the, one of the advantages of PET imaging is that it's also quantitative. And so there is a possibility to uh, work out how much radiation might be delivered. And, and that's, that's a process we call dosimetry. 
Now that's very difficult with a short-lived radioisotope when we're trying to look at the delivery of radiation over a prolonged period of time. So gallium uh, 68, which is the diagnostic tracer that we, or radioisotope we mostly use for the, the diagnostic part of the theranostic paradigm, has a half-life only 68 minutes. Uh, so you tend, you can image for maybe three, four, five hours, uh, maybe out to eight hours at the most, but you don't really get a good idea of how much radiation would be delivered over two or three weeks, which is what it, the, the the realistic time frame over which lutetium is, is delivering its its radiation. But we have other uh, isotopes that can enable us to do prospective dosimetry. And one of the areas we've been working on is the pairing of copper 64, which has a, a half-life of around 13 hours, uh, which is long enough to, to image out to 24 hours, which enables us to capture the uptake and clearance of radio radiation from normal tissues like the kidneys, uh, the, the salivary glands and the, the bowel, uh, but also uh, to work out how much is retained in the tumour and to work out uh, from those uh, what the therapeutic index would be in terms of delivery of radiation to tumour, which is we want to maximise within the tolerance of normal tissues. So we want to minimise the amount of radiation to normal tissues so we minimise that damage. And in certain situations uh, where that therapeutic index is extremely high, uh, we could give a very high amount of radiation. Uh, and the more radiation we give to a cell, the more likely we are to kill it. Uh, and so uh, in particularly the first cycle of treatment where the mass of tumour will tend to um, uh, t take up as much as it can of the circulating tumour and leave relatively less for normal tissues, a, a phenomenon we call the sink effect. And the cells that have the highest receptor or target expression, are the ones that also are most likely to, to be killed uh, with that first cycle of treatment. So if we can uh, deliver an optimal and safe amount with that first cycle of treatment, we may only need one or two cycles. We may only need one. Uh, and so we're, we've, we've got into this idea um, with neuroendocrine tumours that we need to give four cycles of treatment. But there, there, there's really very little science to that. You know, why, why should it be four, not six, not eight, uh, as long as the, the target expression is there? Uh, or why shouldn't we give a lot more for the first cycle and, and try and kill it like we do with radioactive iodine? We, we tend not to give multiple doses of radioactive iodine because we know our best chance of curing a patient is with that very first cycle of, of treatment. If we don't cure them with that, the chances of curing them with the next one are diminished and the third one, it's almost negligible. And yet we, we've sort of lost uh, or we've forgotten what we learned from, from that uh, form of the, the diagnostic paradigm. That's very interesting, Rod. And uh, uh, I mean, to optimize the treatment for each and individual patient, looking at the total society or the total amount of uh, patients, I mean, to maximize the total outcome of diagnostic, the well-being, the value created, what is the way forward as you see it? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, that very sophisticated approach that I spoke about is not necessarily going to be applicable to every patient. Uh, and if the vast majority of patients uh, are effectively treated with a one-size-fits-all uh, protocol, that, that's great because you can deliver that widely without the sophisticated resources. But there are patients at the edges uh, of, of that general category that that where that personalized therapy is going to be critical to uh, making them either get a better outcome or to be excluded more safely from treatment and you know this this is a uh, i guess a debate that i've had with many of the people who have been involved in the development of these in the commercial sector they say well we know it works for four doses of a standard administered activity uh, uh, it works, you know, in the vast majority of people, and it's safe in the vast majority of people, and and therefore we don't need dosimeter, and we don't need imaging, and we don't need any of these these very sophisticated tools that you're talking about. And they're right, but there are pe people at either end of the spectrum who are either inadequately treated or could be treated uh, uh, if we um, uh, were able to identify how we can treat them safely. There's some people who get toxicity and there's some people who, who, who don't get uh, adequately treated because we don't give them quite enough therapy. So too much or too little, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's a three bears uh, story. I don't know if you have that in Sweden. Uh, I'm sure it's a, it's a universal uh, fairy tale. It's, you don't want it too, too big, you don't want it too small, you want it just right. And, and most people are in the just right category, but uh, the sophisticated precision personalized medicine is gonna be for the too big or the too small. And with that, um in an optimal world, will, th will that be at the specific centers and then in the general centers you can offer the one-fits-all solution? Yeah, I definitely think that that's the, that's the way to go. That um, uh, uh, you know, in, in places where the resources aren't available, then the one-size-fits-all you know is a is a great option. Uh, as I said to, to Gustav, in terms of imaging, if you can't image, uh, you know, therapy if patients are symptomatic and progressing, and they've run out of therapeutic options, treatment is better than no treatment. Uh, and and a, a significant proportion of patients will benefit from that, and and, and that's fine. Uh, and similarly, uh, as we um, we move into to uh, more widespread theranostic approaches, uh, identifying the patients who wouldn't necessarily you know necessarily benefit from the one size fits all, and then going to a specialist centre to look at more specific characterization of their disease, either with additional traces, additional targets or combination therapies uh, are areas that I think um, that the evolution of, of medicine is going, going to go. Uh, you know, the, um, we've seen this evolution, I think, in, in, um, uh, in oncology as well, where uh, certain therapies can be widely distributed in the community, in community hospitals, in, in general hospitals and, and, and cancer centres. But there are certain therapies that require a certain level of sophistication that can only be done in specialist centres, you know, CAR T cells, for example. You know, you, you need substantial resources to, to do that. And, and they're not for everyone, but they might be for a, a subgroup of patients. And I think there will be niche applications of theranosis uh, that can only and will only ever be uh, supplied in specialist centres. And 
the advantage in those specialist centres is that uh, they will, by their nature, I think, accumulate experience and data that will refine it. And eventually, once you've got enough data, it may become what was a niche application may become a general application uh, and more widespread. And, and I, I think that's how, as a, as a medical community, uh, that we're going to see um, uh, these um, these treatments become more widely understood, more widely used, uh, and, and more safely used at the same time. What brought you into the diagnostic in the first time? It's a, it's it's a very good question. I, I actually started my um, uh, journey in, in nuclear medicine with an interest in cardiology. I was interested in in the the diagnosis of of, of cardiac disease using radioactive traces, particularly coronary artery disease, uh, which in the uh, 1980s when I was you know, considering medical specialties, uh, cardiology most interest uh, interested me, and that's where I started to first get the idea of this subpopulations of cells. When it, when when you block a coronary artery, you you, you stop the blood flow uh, to that to the heart muscle, and some of it dies, and some of it's in what we call an ischemic penumbra, uh, uh, an area around the the area that's killed. And then there's normal heart, which is supplied by normal vessels. And we identify uh, the uh, dead uh, and uh, hypoxic, the lacking in oxygen, ischemic myocardium around it, by doing two, two PET traces. Uh, one, looking at coronary blood flow, uh, generally with rubidium or with nitrogen-13 ammonia. And the second one, looking at the viability of the heart, uh, which uses glucose, particularly when it's starved of oxygen or starved of blood supply, where it increases its use of glucose. So the infarct zone, the dead myocardium, is, is negative on both scans. The ischemic myocardium is positive on the FTG and, and uh, has low uh, uh, rubidium uh, or nitrogen-13 perfusion. The normal myocardium is is has up a good perfusion and may or may not be using glucose, but you can identify it. So you've got those three subpopulations of cells identified by two scans. And similarly, uh, that uh, concept seemed to resonate with me in terms of cancer. We know that some cancers lack oxygen and become hypoxic. Uh, and so we can identify within a cancer deposit uh, the, um, the, the, the viable tumour, which is using glucose, the necrotic tumour, which is not, and the hypoxic tumour, which by using a hypoxia tracer uh, as, as a third subpopulation of cells within the cancer deposit. And so that, that, that was a, a very early um, uh, insight for me into to, to looking at subpopulations of cells and heterogeneity. So translating from nuclear cardiology and myocardial viability tests uh, to, to cancer definition. Uh, it happened that uh, one of my cardiac stress nurses, because uh, I was doing a lot of nuclear cardiology stress tests, so my, my uh, nurse developed a gastronoma, uh, which is a rare form of, of neuroendocrine tumour, and I happened to read an article by uh, Eric Krenning and Dick Quickerboom, who developed PRRT, and I wrote a letter to uh, uh, to Eric and said, uh, I'm very interested in this therapy. Do you think uh, you, you could ex give me the protocol and uh, send me some uh, of this uh, uh, octreotide stuff that you've been using? And uh, er Eric uh, uh, 
put a, um, a, a wad of paper with his protocol and a, a, a tube of white powder in the in the general mail and sent it to me in Australia. Uh, back in the days where uh, uh, customs were, you know, they, they must have thought it was a recreational amount of whatever it was, not a, not a not a commercial or <laughs> an illicit. You know. and, 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 and and so my my radio chemist made up this and and we treated her. Um, when you know we we spoke about doing this podcast, I think I intimated to you that the the most satisfying thing for me is actually the patient stories uh, that uh, uh, have have come out of the therapies that we've we've given and the friends that I've made. Um, and it, it it's a very different kind of uh, palliative treatment, if you like, because we don't cure most patients with radionuclide therapy. That that's the reality but it becomes a very effective long-term palliative treatment in many, many patients. And so uh, even without the expectation of cure, we can deliver a wonderful quality of life and wonderful life experiences for, for patients. Uh, Joe said that it's not science, it's art. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it was Sir William Osler that the, the quote came from. If, if not for the, the heterogeneity in disease, that medicine might have been a, 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 a science rather than an art. And I think this is really uh, very much the case as well uh, with uh, radionuclide therapy. Even when we see the target and even when it's intense, it, the, the tumours don't always respond. And sometimes they respond dramatically and other times they don't. And Uh, there's there's clearly going to be tumor-related and host-related uh, uh, features to that. Uh, we often see that the toxicity is highest in the patients who have the best response because they're probably intrinsically more radiosensitive, all their cells, uh, so that both normal uh, cells and and the cancers respond better to radiation. So, uh, in 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 for me, the the ability to image before we give the therapy and during the course of treatment allows us to do that individualized therapy to know when to, to uh, increase the amount of radiation we give, when to back off, when to stop, when to start again. Uh, and, and to me, that that's more about art uh, than, than science. It, it, it's, it, it, it takes, it takes a... Um, an understanding of uh, not only the, the the science of the disease, but also the, the patient. And, you know, uh, we will treat a, uh, a young patient differently than, than an older patient. And it's not ageist. It, it's about what their expectations in life are. Uh, uh, you know, whether longevity or symptom control is important. And this is true also for prostate cancer, that prostate cancer in a 50-year-old is a completely different proposition to what it is in an 85-year-old. Uh, in an 85-year-old, their, their life expectancy is necessarily uh, shortened just by virtue of their age. And so the things that are really critical to them is quality of life. Uh, in a 50-year-old, uh, you know, particularly if they haven't retired and they've got teenage children, dependence uh, on, on them uh, financially, longevity is, is, is really, really important and survival is 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 the most critical thing and they're often willing to 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 uh, accept more toxicity if it gives them a better chance of longevity and so that discussion i think is a really a critical one 
in, in the Theranostic approach is that we need to understand the expectations of our patients, not only the, the, the ability of the, the, the treatment itself. Uh, and so I, I spend a lot of time, uh, in, particularly in the first consultation, getting to know the patient, their carer, uh, and, and what their expectations are. And, um, you know, people show these beautiful pictures of, of a whole lot of black spots disappearing. And to me, that in some ways gives false expectation to patients that, that this is a curative treatment. Uh, when in fact, uh, most of those patients who, who had those dramatic responses, they, they also tended to be the ones that came back uh, quicker because they were the more actively growing tumours. Uh, uh, and, and sometimes we need to, to temper the enthusiasm and the unrealistic expectations that people might have of the therapy, to, not, not to, to disillusion them, but to give them, uh, uh, you know, let them set their own agenda and objectives for, for the therapy. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been to many of my patients' funerals, um, uh, and which is sort of the ultimate, uh, I guess, admission of failure as an oncologist is going to the funeral, funeral of your patients. But the reason I've gone is because they've become my friends. Um, and and their family are, are so appreciative uh, of the quality uh, of life that they've had and the the prolongation of life uh, of quality of life uh, that they've they've, in, they've they've been able to achieve and and to me that is a great satisfaction uh, in delivering this therapy because at the end of the day we we are all going to die that I've learned about theranostics is that by selecting the patients, planning them well and, and, and monitoring their therapy carefully, that we can deliver an excellent quality of life uh, to, to patients very, very safely. Uh, and because it's an intermittent therapy, often every, you know, sometimes every six to eight weeks, sometimes even longer, 12, sometimes you know, longer than that between therapies, uh, patients stay out of hospital. And if they don't get complications acutely from the, the treatment, then then again, they're, they're minimising their contact with the healthcare sector, they're maximising their ability to work, to, to be with family, to travel, to do other things. Uh, and, and, and that's really an advantage. It's not like, you know, chemotherapy, you're go, going in once a week for, for, you know, until you progress or having a treatment every day, uh, uh, five days a week for six weeks or so. Uh, it, it's, it's a very convenient therapy and, 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 and you know, for its effectiveness uh, and, and cost, I think, uh, you know, in most parts of the world, it's actually a very affordable uh, and effective therapy. Rod really gave us the principles of the theragnostics. Uh, he has so much to share. Yes, and it's so exciting. And what we learned, among other things, was that if, as long as you have the target, the size and the activity or even the aggressiveness of the tumor could really be our friend in teragnostics. And actually, I have some more questions here. Uh, so um, uh, we have decided that uh, Rod could join us for the next episode of Teragnostics Talks as well. This is great. And to all of you from us... Stay tuned, stay safe. And if you want to reach out to us, please send an email to podcast at samnordic.se. Podcast at samnordic.se or visit us on LinkedIn. Stay tuned. Bye.